before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 23. As always, joined by the three amigos, we've got Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting, the Tom Brady of Macro. Welcome back, Tom Brady. Speaking of, Rich is in his uh, chalet uh, in, in Quebec, and we've got Keith Dicker of Icecap Asset Management, as always, in his Patagucci, only the finest materials for that man. Um, but yeah, welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, you know, pretty, I think it should be a pretty good show here lined up. We're obviously going to chat, uh, as usual, a little bit of Canadian CPI inflation, not to uh, beat you over the head with that. But I think more importantly, what everybody was watching this week was the U.S. Federal Reserve. Uh, so sneaking in their first rate hike, uh, 25 basis points since 2018. Uh, but more so a lot of the lingo, right? I mean, basically, as we've talked about in the show, for Canadians, really, really what's important and what you have to watch is basically the, the U.S. Federal Reserve is the world's most important central bank. Canada is essentially, this Canada essentially imports their monetary policy from the U.S. So, I mean, yeah, we talk about Tiff Macklem and the BOC, but like really what's most important is Jerome Powell at the Fed in the U.S. there. Uh, he's the one that's moving markets. So, um, Keith, I know you were paying very close attention to, to, to Powell's comments and whatnot. Uh, I'd love to kind of hear your, your thoughts and your, maybe your summarization on, on what you took away as, you know, um, I mean, obviously you're, you're running portfolios here for a living. So what's kind of your takeaway, uh, from that fed meeting? Yeah, absolutely. Steve. So, uh, there were, what's the best way to ex- for us, there were no surprises. And what we mean by that is they absolutely had to raise rates. So where's a couple of weeks back, remember the Bank of Canada, they didn't raise rates and, you know, it's a big shocker and everything. Uh, for the Fed, they, they were absolutely going to raise rates, mainly because the market has already moved rates for them, for, for overnight rates, basically. So you knew they were going to do that. What was really, um, I don't know if it was the word surprising, but most people were not the majority were not expecting it is that he was very hawkish with, with his commentary afterwards. And what that means for everyone here is um, in, in the central bank world, if you're talking about raising interest rates making it more expensive to do things, have less money sloshing around the system, it, it means you're, you're a hawk. If you're doing the opposite, it means you're, you're a dove. So you will often hear us talk about a central bank as hawkish or, or dovish. So yesterday, uh, the Americans became extremely hawkish. So not only do they signal, yeah, we're raising rates. And, you know, we, we, the, the main thing, what was the main sentence he said was, um, he said, basically he said, you know, we're, we're confident, get a load of this. We're confident that the private sector can not only withstand, but they can flourish in the face of less accommodating monetary policy. So that, that's telling everyone, hey, we're going to continue raising rates. We're going to, and, and the other big thing was, uh, not only are they ending QE, but they're going to start doing QT, which is quantitative tightening. And I'll explain what that is as well. But just from an, an echo room perspective in the central bank world, he came out yesterday with the guns are blazing. And he said, we, you know, the, the easy money game is over. Everyone, everyone better get ready for it. And then, you know, off he went. So I'll circle back again after maybe we hear from Rich. Yeah, Rich, what's your, uh, what's your, what's your takeaway from that? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, Keith's right in the sense that it was very hawkish. But I think what's, for me, the most important thing is what the market, um, whether or not you meet or exceed expectations and sort of what's been priced in. And so that's, for me, what I think is... Um, the market's reaction tells you that sort of a lot of the so-called damage from the reducing liquidity or raising interest rates um, has been sort of absorbed. And what do I mean by market damage? I mean, we're already 20% off the highs, in some cases way, way higher, way, way more. The breadth and depth of the sort of the, con- the correction in certain sectors, like the tech sector, 
um, alternative energy space. A lot of this frothy sort of liquidity driven stuff has already, I mean, some, in some cases we're down 30, even 40% in, in some cases. Um, and so for me, what was interesting was, um, you know, it, this is one of those classic examples of, of sell the, the rumor and buy the fact. So the fact that they raise rates and then they're sort of telegraphing their next bunch of moves, which is really in line with the, either the two-year bond yield or other parts of the yield curve, um, tells you that in a way that, and, and sort of the muted market reaction, whether it was the, the, the 10 year bond yield or the, or the rest of sort of the equity market, um, tells you sort of, this was sort of, all this was priced in. And I think that that's frankly, as far as central bank's job of sort of guiding the economy and guiding interest rates, I think he sort of stuck the landing on this one. Um, we'll see obviously as things go forward with Ukraine and oil and, and other economic shocks and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But my initial reaction is, um, he did what sort of was telegraphed and the market's muted reaction is a good one, I'd say. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that was obviously, it's interesting because of this, you know, there's going to be a lot of people listening to the show and going, Hey guys, you know, I wish I tune into the show, you know, every week and you guys, you guys had three or four rate hikes, you know, and, and Powell's basically sort of essentially nodding his head saying, yes, you know, what the market is pricing in, which is, I believe what another six hikes this year uh is very very realistic and plausible um so you know i think of some of us like wow you guys got it wrong again like is any of your is like i mean i know what my view is like i don't know keith rich like have any of your views changed in terms of the path forward for the federal reserve again we know that inflation basically it's you know 7.9 eight percent probably gets to what double digits in the next couple months potentially on the on the back of some of this inflation coming from from you know russia ukraine etc um it's a it's a tough thing because you think about it you know you got inflation at eight you know the federal reserve overnight rate is at what 0.25 right now uh, even if they get to one percent, you have inflation running at say six or seven still as it comes as, as it comes off towards the the latter half of this year. I mean, you still are looking at deep, deep negative interest rates. So, w- what in your view is the path forward here? Is this do you have a change of view after that hawkish speech, or are you guys still in the same camp that we're going to see, you know, something break in in financial markets, Keith? Yeah, so my, my view, uh, it's actually been further confirmed. So you're always looking for a reason to change your view or harden it or soften it. And, and so before yesterday, you know, we, we've been quite vocal here at ICECAP in that with the Federal Reserve and, and the other major Western central banks, excluding the Europeans, um, with them tightening, it is going to create a, a crisis in the emerging market world. So with the Fed yesterday coming out and said, hey, we're going to tighten, we're doing this or that. And not only are we going to do it, but we think our domestic economy can absorb it. And that tells me they're going to continue on that path. And so we fully expect to see something happening there in, in the market. I know Rich said earlier, you know, yesterday, there was a bit of a muted response in, in the market. Um, you know, the markets already responded to the Fed hike leading up to it. So it was, you know, sell the news, you know, buy the rumor. But you know, I'm sort of chuckling here today. People are thinking, oh, yeah, the worst is over. The, no, nothing else bad is going to happen in the world. This is now the bottom. And, you know, we, you'll, you'll never call the bottom or the top in any market because it takes a while to, to sort it out. Our main uh, equity models, which doesn't use any subjectivity whatsoever, there's no earnings estimates and, and all that stuff. Um, you know, they're, they're still suggesting we're, we're in for some, you know, choppy, periods coming up here. So you won't know until we get hindsight with it. But uh, we think this is still a pretty tough market. And uh, just just to share with you again, because people talk about, oh, they look at the stock market all the time. That's always their barometer for stuff. You know, we like to guide people, look at the bond market. So specifically look at the credit market, okay, which is companies issuing debt. So this is a, a, a New story came out yesterday on, on Bloomberg, and the title is Banks Slam Breaks on Leveraged Loan Sales. It's a sure thing, sellers. So they're going through and they say, you know, it used to be an easy sell. You know, the banks would, you know, lend out the easy money to companies and package it together and then sell it out. Uh, that that market is now dead. And so the, the paragraph that, that catches my attention, remember, this is like a global story. It's not specific to one country. Banks led by Royal Bank of Canada on Wednesday were stuck 
with 1.7 billion of loans for SSNC Technologies Holdings Inc.'s acquisition of Blue Prism Group. It's the fourth loan to be pulled in the US this year and the largest. So here's RBC. They now have 1.7 billion of a loan stuck on their books. Uh, I would imagine they're still going to value it at 1.7 until they can no longer keep it at that rate. But again, once, once money start, stops flowing, it's, it's going to be really difficult to keep the economy you know, in, in that V-shaped recovery that people might be expecting right now. The other point, you know, yesterday the Fed said, we're going to start uh, doing quantitative tightening. And uh, they didn't mention it, but everyone's suspecting it's going to be with T-bills. So, in, so these will be short-term uh, treasury bills that they bought from, you know, the U.S. government. They're maturing usually like 30 days or less. Th they're going to start releasing those back into the system. And, and the reason for doing that is maybe people have read about the repo crisis over the last few months, the repo market. That's when... If I'm a big company, big entity, I need to borrow money for one night. Uh, I want to borrow it to, from Steve because Steve has excess cash available. But Steve says, well, for you to borrow it, I want you to post some collateral with me. And I say, well, I don't have any good collateral right now because I can't get any. So with the Fed doing this quantitative tightening, they're actually releasing collateral in, into the overnight system for the repo market. So again, all, all these things, are, they're happening several levels underneath what most people might be hearing and, and listening to. Um, and it's, again, as part of the Fed, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of flack for inflation running away. And I don't really think they're going to be able to change inflation based on raising rate. They can change expectations, not the actual underlying, but uh, th they needed to get, you know, credit markets moving again. So again, RBC just got stuck with 1.7 billion of a loan on their books that they couldn't sell. At the same time, the Fed is trying to make it easier, you know, for this credit to flow. So there's a lot still happening. Like it's not smooth sailing coming up. That was a lot of talk, wasn't it? For yeah, no, I, yeah. Yeah. Rich, I'd love okay. for you to maybe like push, push back on that. Like, give us your thoughts. I know, like, obviously you're like an equity bull. I, I think you have been for a while and, and rightfully so. Um, like, so, I mean, how, 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 what's your kind of view on all that as well? Like, I mean, how are, how are you looking at equity markets? Like, how are you sort of, I mean, advising clientele, say whatever you can say on the record, obviously. Yeah. Like, do, you see, it, do you see it? Do you see it being like choppy here moving forward? Do you, do you feel like, again, obviously I think like, I'm assuming, your view on like, cause like my, my, my thing to you, it really is like, well, yeah. Like what, what does stop the fed from getting in, you know, let's say six more hikes this year, in my opinion, is, and obviously it was to Keith's opinion, which is a financial market mishap, right? Some sort of derailment of the, of the fed. Otherwise, like what excuse do they have not to raise rates essentially? Right. So I'm kind of curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with the sort of the, maybe the end game. I think that eventually there might be some kind of, I mean, you know, um, I think it's Ben Bernanke that says that, you know, cycles don't die of old age. They're murdered by the Fed. Um, and sorry, if I screwed up that quote, it's a, it's a great one, but, it, and it's more or less what he said. And I think there's just a couple of things I, get, I think we'll eventually, yeah, we'll get down, down the road, but between, you know, point a and point b which is the sort of the case that you guys have outlined i'm just i guess i'm much more constructive on the economy and and i think that what we've seen now with respect to price earnings ratios the volatility um the earnings expectations it allows for um, um, um i mean i think expectations have already been beaten down so much whether it's on the economy um and and in reality i think there's actually lots of tailwinds um that i'd like to address in part but I, but first i mean i think the the pushback i think w w with respect to keith and on the em is like yes i understand the em is vulnerable and i guess i also agree that the dollar is important for the em and the dollar funding is important and interest rates are probably um these countries are more sensitive to those interest rates but i would also just posit that a lot of these ems unlike other cycles they've done a lots of um interest rate hikes themselves in advance of the fed in a way that i don't think that that's been true in other um cycles and i think that that in a in a, in a way offers them some protection the other thing is that a lot of these ems that in, in, in the past have been vulnerable um have actually benefited a lot from the commodity boom and will do so going forward. So that's that's on the on the EM side. I think that you know it's not in my view. I don't think it's as, as clear as it has been in the past that when the Fed raises it, just screws the EM up. On the the on the inflation thing, I think what's really important, and this sort of relates to my view on equities, is that 
you know, I'm always of the view that when politicians are talking about something, the, the worst of it is probably behind us. Um, in the same way that no, no politician was talking about inflation over this time last year, and I was banging the drum as hard as I possibly could and was laughed at and ridiculed by either colleagues or people on Twitter, only to have it explode exactly as sort of we, we predicted it. And I think that, and you could make the case, um, I think that, you know, the, the, the oil going up 10 bucks or whatever, or commodities hitting all time highs because of Russia over the last two weeks is, is irrelevant. What matters is the rate of change and the year on year change. And all of those base effects are clear that we're seeing the last of the impulse behind us. And I think you're in a situation where you actually might get inflation, especially in the US, roll off. Again, it'll still be very, very high, but it'll give a reprieve to the Federal Reserve, which in six months from now, it'll see, if you see inflation just rolling off because that's the way these numbers tend to work, you have a situation where the Fed no longer has the same political pressure put upon it to raise rates. That being said, even if I'm wrong about that, in, um, interest rates will still be deeply negative, as you highlighted, Steve. And I think that um, what you get in that situation is you get the rotation, which is why I think it's really tough to be negative on equities um, in general. Like, will they outperform in the way they have in the past? Probably not. But are there extremely good opportunities in, in sectors that are unloved? Absolutely. Not to mention, I think the other thing is, um, I think what sort of the missing figure here is I think that banks in the US are extremely, extremely well capitalized. And I, I know I harp on that every time we, we get into this, but this idea that they're just going to explode, I think is, I think is, I think is wrong. I think that they're massively over collateralized, even in the worst, I mean, the amount of cash, you could have a 10%, I think something like a 10% default on all of their loans, and it would only account for something like 50% of their cash. And just to give you an idea, that's nowhere near what happened in 2008. And so, so like, do I think that financial conditions will get tighter from here? Yes. But there are certain, I mean, I think that that means that, that a sectors and parts of the economy that are vulnerable to tighter financial conditions, like you know, the bogus stuff, sure, that'll get affected. But, you know, consumer staples, tele, telecom providers, I mean, energy, materials, um, you know, home builders. I mean, if you look at lending for consumer industrial loans, it's, it's, it's ratcheting up, not down. And if you look at uh, the senior loan officer survey, they're, they're, they're still saying that they want to expand their balance sheets, not contract them. And so I just, I don't, I don't think that it's, um, yeah, I think it's just way too easy to say that the Fed is going to raise rates and that's it. The cycle's over. You don't want to be involved in risk assets. Because the other, the alternative, sorry, bringing it back to your original question, which is how do I deal with clients, is the alternatives to buy bonds. But if you'll notice, the 10-year bond yield is a 217 today. And so if you were really worried about it, if, if, if the market was really super worried about it, recession, I'm sorry, the 10-year bond yield would not be at 220 and rising, not falling, making higher lows. So that's, I don't know, that's my pushback on that, on that view. I don't know if, Steve, you have any... Bye. I say I sense another Twinkie bet here. Um, <laughs> Keith, I don't know if you if you want to rebuttal that. I mean, actually, I wouldn't mind even uh, steering this conversation as well towards what's happening with the yield curve. Uh, I think we've talked about it briefly on the show before uh, regarding yield curve inversions and how they ultimately are sort of forward indicators or forward looking into you know future recessions. Uh, I think they are certainly flashing warning signals. We had part of the yield curve invert. Uh, I think post-Fed meeting there, uh, we had the, pull it up here, we had the, well, I don't have it in front of me, so forgive me, but Rich is probably watching it closer than I am. So uh, is there, what, what's happening with the yield curve there? And then Keith, we'll get, jump over to you. Well, it just depends quickly which one you're talking about. So the twos, tens, we almost inverted, right? So the two-year, 10-year um, yield curve almost inverted. Which I is what everyone, the twos, tens is what everyone kind of goes off of for. Yes. Like, oh, that's the official yield curve inversion look out everybody that's the twos tens is the one that you that you want to watch ultimately yes but um importantly there's another one that people look at and if you look and not to be a nerd about this but i guess you are who you are um a lot of the research that the federal reserve has done itself is actually you're supposed to look at the the 10 years three months and that's actually um, going up, not down. And we're, and, and I think that that, and like, so the research at the fed is, I can't remember what San Francisco fed or whatever has done as tracked every recession, you know, since 
you know, whatever, since this, since the civil war, no, I'm kidding. Like, I don't know, the last like six or seven or eight or nine recessions or whatever. And they have argued that it's actually the tens three months. That is the key indicator for a recession. Yes or no. I, I think we should all preface. I think we should just caveat that by saying that past, you know, indicators are not something you should always rely on because the world changes and things change and central bank policy changes. And, you know, no one would think that we would have, like central bank balance sheet this big when a lot of this research was originally, you know, posited and thought about, et cetera, et cetera. But anyways, that that's the, that's the deal right now. Damn it, Rich. Can't you just get bearish? <laughs> I will uh, when inflation, I, you know what? I'll t- that's a really good question. I think I will when, if, 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 if earnings expectations were really, really high and price earnings ratios were higher. And I think that, that the sentiment indicators were, were much more euphoric than they are. They're, they're actually really, really low. I think if it, you you know like if, if there's if everyone's really bearish and expectations are really low and everyone's worried about a recession these things in my view I don't know Keith might have a different view they they tend not to happen um, and that's so that's what's really important for me right at this juncture there Keith wow <laughs> it's wow. shorter than yours <laughs> <laughs> okay so first of all the um, you know we have lots of you know, expressions in, in the in the world in the investment world. And uh, one that works out quite well, quite a bit is, is called don't fight the Fed. So in, in this corner, we have, you know, the 800 pound gorilla, the Fed. And then the other corner, we have little Richard. That's a new name for him. Hey? <laughs> uh, so Rich wants to stand in front of this big steamroller that, that's coming along. So let, let's look at it from a different perspective. You guys remember the, um, you guys don't because you're young. You guys remember the movie Silence of the Lamps? I've uh, seen it. I've, I haven't seen it, but I know of it. Yes. I'm it's, very it's familiar deep. with it. You guys have heard of it through like the old and goldie movies, right? Yes, From the I heard it through one of your, I, thir- I heard it through one of your boomer stories. Yeah. So in, in this case, uh, I'm Hannibal Lecter. And Rich is Clarice Starling, the FBI agent. You know how that film ends, right? <laughs> and I'm saying, hello, Clarice. And Rich is like, what's going on? Said, so Rich, why, why are your lambs getting slaughtered? Because that's, th- not the, in this case, that's not the way the movie ends, Keith. <laughs> it's not the ending. But in this case, the lambs are the emerging market universe. And you're trying to get cuddly with these things. And I'm telling you, the Fed... If they continue on this path, they are just going to slaughter these lambs. So I am not going to be cuddling up to the emerging but are, market but world. But they already traded a ten. They already traded ten times forward earnings. How much lower do you want them to go? <laughs> uh, earnings are development. Capital just flees. So, for example, anyone notice Chinese markets this week? That's yes, uh, they tanked. What, what happened? No, they sky. Well, after tanks, well, no, they, it's because together. the PBOC and got involved and tried to prop them up. But before that, they were they were yes, selling off. Absolutely, absolutely. They had to get in and, and prop up the market. I also know from two other sources that the Hong Kong dollar got really stretched to the max this week as well. So they they almost like again, guys. Things are incredibly tight out in that world. And trying and again, it's just me. Like I'm not picking on any you know single market view or anything like that, but trying to use earnings estimates um, or any kind of estimates in, in this world, when we went from, you know, 20% rates in the 80s down to zero and, and negative with debt going through the roof at its same levels. And now we're trying to think that central banks can now normalize things. I just think someone's going to get screwed up along the way big time. And uh, I know that that's our view. Oh. That, that's our view with it. I just don't think. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I, but I don't disagree with that. I just think it's 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 bonds. It's not equity. I don't think the idea that equities are going to get screwed. I I just don't. I think it's too it's too easy. Well, hey, hey, easy. let's let's always come back to this right, conversation. Sorry. I think we've I think we've, ch- I think we've chatted about this multiple times. But I think you guys are still in the camp of like at the end of 2022, <laughs> the equity market will return. 10% as it has over the last, what, 60, 70, 80 years. Um, so I think you guys are kind of still on that. So you guys, I think, I mean, ultimately, I think we all have basically a similar view, which is the system is kind of pooched. The central banks are backed into a corner. There's really no, you cannot, you can't, you can't taper a Ponzi essentially. And so I think we're all of that view. I think we just have a different outlook of kind of how we get there and how, 
you know, sure. for example, equity markets perform during that that path essentially if that's to summarize the last 25 30 minutes of <laughs> rambling uh we all still are in the camp that this notion of you know six hikes seven hikes eight hikes we're going to get rates back up to two and a half which is our sort of target neutral rate i think is kind of fantasy land um and so again i think it's just we're just debating or deliberating on the path of of sort of what trips these guys up. They'll be looking for any sort of excuse or air cover that they can. Um, I would like to point people out to the two, there was a great chart that was posted on Twitter by Lynn Alden. So basically there's sort of two more recent periods in modern history where inflation has deviated well above sort of central bank targets. So that was in the 1970s, which everybody is well aware. And in the 1970s, the central bankers um, began, you know, Paul Volcker obviously began hiking interest rates to essentially match the level of uh, the pace of inflation. So basically inflation went up, interest rates went up. And then you have the 1940s, which was during the, the World War, of course. And so you had periods of very high double digit inflation and a central bank policy that did not move uh, whatsoever, where they actually implemented basically a form of yield curve control, let inflation run hot, um, because there was a you know in the 1940s we had a lot of debt and we were going through a you know war period obviously, and so they felt it was the best policy to to sort of keep rates pinned. And so I mean, my personal opinion is I think that's kind of the era that we're in today. Um, and I think Rich is in that same camp, can't speak for Keith necessarily, but I think all you have to do is look at it and say, okay, well, US CPI printed 7.9% and the Fed funds rate is at 0.25. I mean, it's embarrassing. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of leads me to, I guess, our, our next conversation here, which is the, the Canada land, where we had more inflation numbers. Rich, if you want to speak to these um, we'll, we'll touch on these briefly, but so I think Canada's CPI came in at what's 5.7% year over year. Yeah. Let me just quickly go through it. I promise I won't make it as short as possible, which is just the Canadian inflation headline was 5.7 versus 5.5, which was expected. Uh, things that I always look at and obsess over are the shelter component, which hit 6, uh, 6.6. Uh, remember shelter component is like 40% of the Canadian CPI basket or something like, yeah, something like that, like 33% of core food, which is important. Most people eat food um, is uh, 6.7. That's a larger portion of imagine of lower income families. Obviously that's partly to do with supply chain stuff, but you know, definitely to do with a lot of profligacy from the government end as well. Something I thought was really interesting. My last point, and I'll, I'll, I'll pass it on, which is the recreation and education, which was something that sort of doesn't, really move the needle, but that's now at a five-year high. So it's, it's interesting how some money is getting pushed around into different um, sectors and how importantly companies are able to, are trying anyway, to pass on the price increases to their consumers. Yeah. I wouldn't mind just quickly touching on that as well, just from the, your, your Canadian housing update, as Rich talked about on the shelter component there. Um, so we also got some recent data this week uh, from the Canadian Real Estate Association, sort of covering the national housing market. Um, so you have uh, the, the, you know, the official the official lines. We can start to see we're starting to see sales slowly taper off from all time record highs, not to, to be unexpected. Uh, but so Canadian national home prices uh, inflated three and a half percent month over month. So that's a massive jump, three and a half month month over month, which actually suggests that home prices are accelerating on a monthly basis and home prices were officially up 29.2%, 29.2% year over year. So you basically have 30% price growth on a national level, which is absolutely insanity. Um, but what I will like to sort of caveat this a little bit here is a little asterisk for all of you. Um, that national home price index, which is saying, you know, prices are rising three and a half percent, they're up 30% from last year. It's actually kind of a backwards, backwards looking indicator, uh, just the way that that home price index is sort of calculated and, and it's dumped into a formula. It's kind of backwards looking. So uh, what we're actually seeing in, in most of the major Canadian housing markets is you're seeing activity start to slow. I think you've seen the highs for home prices, at least probably in this cycle. 
Um, so we are starting to see some easing in that market. So I suspect you're probably going to see that 29.2% number. It might tick up another one or 2%, but I think, it, I think you're going to start to see that taper off. Um, so I think that's kind of important. I don't know, Keith, if you had any comments, I think your, your house there has doubled, uh, doubled under the Trudeau government, not to get political here, but, uh, took just over six years since, uh, national home prices have officially doubled, officially doubled, uh, under the Trudeau, Trudeau government since he was put in power in November, 2015, they have officially doubled and that took just over six years. Um, so never count on a politician to, you know, fix the housing market because he campaigned on housing affordability, obviously. And, uh, we can see what's happened here. So Keith, I don't know. How's your, uh, house, how's your Chateau there in Halifax? Chateau is nice. I think the, uh, the housing market will fix itself. Is that what, is it what the government said once about the budget? <laughs> It'll balance itself. I think it will. Hey, well, I wonder if he's thinking about monetary policy yet. <laughs> I won't, I'm not going to talk anymore about the housing market or the well, the tie the inflation story though is another interesting story that I'm, I'm looking here. I'm looking at. Um, so again, the, the the title is Trudeau's finance chief has more room to spend in the April budget, right? So here, so the, the so the gist of it is because they say commodity prices, but as you know, when you're most looking at oil prices have gone up, it's going to bring in more tax revenues coming in. And so the way this story is written and government policymakers are deciding much to spend, they're saying, hey, this is awesome. We now have more revenue coming in. And then the article goes on to say it gives them even more money to spend. Like, again, it's nothing about, wow, we got a bit of a, we don't have to spend as much as we had to with our original plan in case instead, let's use this to pay off some debt or whatever you want to do with it. The, the government response is always spend, spend, and, and spend some more. And so they're viewing this as a great, as a positive thing. They have tax revenues coming in. However, as we here on the Looney Hour know, with all this new tax revenue coming in, where is it really coming from? Higher gas prices at the pump. So it's again, it's it's already been taxed. It's coming out of everyone's pockets. So um, again, there's always good inflation and bad inflation. And right now, Canadians are just paying it up through the nose to put gas in their car or, you know, Steve can put it in his yacht, whatever he's, he's driving around out, out that way. But again, just to let you know, from a, a government policy perspective, you know, any dollar they find, they want to spend it again and again and again. So um, it's, it's not a good thing, guys. I'm, I'm never, I've never been so underwhelmed with these policy decisions that I've seen over the last few years. And it doesn't matter if it's coming from red or blue or left or right or up or down. It's th these guys are pushing everything to the max. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's I, rather ironic because I remember these guys, these guys brought in a, a minister of the middle class and, uh, you know, it's kind of the timing of wait, that was wait, rather ironic. Wait, I've, wait, got wait. Something to say, I've got something to say on that. <laughs> we have a, I didn't know that. We have a minister of the middle class. Yes, they're around for about 18 months. And I think that they apparently they couldn't define the role. I mean, probably because there actually isn't a middle class anymore. Um, so officially, we don't have one anymore. But the Trudeau government did bring in a minister of the middle class. Um, so that was so next thing, that. you know, yeah, sorry. Next thing, you know, they'll have like a Greenpeace guy as head of you know the oil patch. Yeah, that was almost like a wah, wah, wah. <laughs> like that. That was like a sentiment indicator for like the top of the middle class, and like, you know. Anyways, uh, Rich, I don't know if you have any comments on. Well, I just want to say like what I think is really kind of I think when you know it's just, we talk about inflation, food is at six percent, six point six percent. We know it's probably higher. We talk about shelter <laughs> going at seven percent. We probably think it's probably higher, um, and we know that wages aren't catching up. And it's important because what matters really, but yet you talk about housing and housing is up 30%. And what just strikes me as incredible is that, is that I'm going to be political because I think it's important because this nominally left-wing government has basically given a massive, massive windfall to the richest. And I'm going to dare I say whitest part of our country. And I think it is just frankly, and so this is why I get so vexed about this policy, these policy stances, refusing to raise interest rates, um, refusing to cut spending. Um, and it, because it basically, it, you know, it, it's, it's 
it's it's sold to us as this you know as this like savior we're going to help emancipate the middle class but i just want to point out a little statistic that i think is really important and it relates to the 30 percent rise in house prices in the u.s they have home ownerships by race and um and i know you guys didn't think we we're going to go there today but i think it's an important thing when we talk about 30 percent house price increases in the u.s they have home ownership by race and non-hispanic white home ownership or owner occupiership is 75%. They don't have the data for the U for Canada, but let's just assume it's roughly the same. Um, for you know, black people, it's 43% in America. For Hispanics of any race, it's 48%. All other races, it's less than 60. And I just want to point out: so when you see these house price increases, massive, massive going up, and and it's just a, it's a it is a bifurcation of the net worth distribution in this country and income inequality based on class and race in a way that I don't think we've ever seen. And I think it's, it's just a really kind of pernicious, nasty thing that no one ever talks about. And I thought it was important to at least address and in this, in this venue, demogra- in a non-political demographics, way, though, very important. Dan demographics. I mean, if you yeah. look at the you look at look at the cohort again. Sorry, Keith, but obviously the the boomers are are, are yeah. benefiting tremendously from this, and and the millennials such as Rich and I. Uh, they, I mean, I see it day to day in my business, right? I mean, again, I, I don't I'm not going to poo poo things here at the end of the day, but uh, you know, you know, skimping out on your avocado toast isn't isn't going right. to move the needle. Um, it, it is what it is, and so I think you know, it's like I said, it's it is rather ironic because I see it in in this market. Basically, the, the pay the so in Vancouver, one of the most you know the expensive housing market in Canada, the play to the the play to pay or pay to play token basically is like if your parents are on the housing ladder, you're 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 basically good. So they basically will take some equity out of the house, they'll refinance whatever, they give you two hundred thousand dollars as your down payment, and that is your as little Johnny's sort of golden ticket into the housing market and now he's part of sort of like the ponzi scheme or whatever you want to call it um and and so that really is so it is kind of very interesting because if you talk about sort of social classes it it really is like you know well kind of depends on how your parents did in life and you know if they you know did well through their asset accumulation you know little johnny will have at least a competitive advantage against his peers so I mean, I, I, it is what it is. Nothing's really, in my opinion, nothing is going to change. I just find it very interesting from a sort of social experiment, so to speak. And obviously, a lot of the policies that have been implemented over the past decade in particular have exacerbated uh, that divide. I guess it's sour grapes from us. <laughs> Keith, I have, a, I have a question for you. Um, so in, in your like day-to-day uh, work, do most people think the housing market is fairly priced? Or do they think it's it's a bubble? And if they do think it's a bubble, why do they still want to buy? I'm just trying to understand the general anecdotal yeah. perspective. No, that's a good it. question. I think there's um. So I I think genuinely like we actually like we literally like joke about this like in our like office like the we call it like the faith like people just have this unbelievable faith in the housing market like you got to have the faith there's no price too high like faith in a 30-year bull market that is unequivocally supported by every level of government regardless of what they say to you on tv like every policy that they put in anytime the housing market wobbles they come in and they they give it a boot to get it going again and so i think there's this like there there's this deep down rooted faith. And, and if you think about it, like even the millennials that are getting, you know, $200,000 down payments, it's like, they're like, well, listen, look, Hey, mom, mom and dad's house went from a hundred thousand dollars to $1.8 million. Like that's my golden ticket to my retirement as well. Just follow the same path that mom and dad did. Um, you know, even though, again, we know they're different paths because mom and dad rid, rode bond yields from 20% down to, you know, 1%. But um, that, that is the, the faith. I think that I am seeing, at least today anyways, I think from some of the sort of more astute investors, is you, we are seeing, um, they're looking at Vancouver and Toronto housing markets in particular and saying, well, man, these things really look pretty fully priced. I mean, is my one bedroom condo 
really going to go from $800,000 to a million bucks in the next couple of years? I don't know. And so we actually are seeing a wave of capital into other parts of Western Canada, in particular, uh, Alberta. It's, it's unbelievable right now just to see that housing market booming. I think what people are doing is they're basically taking all their their sort of inflated gains that they've received in those two markets that, you know, through no hard work of their own have just ballooned by a million bucks and they're refinancing, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of that to go buy, you know, dirt cheap property in, in Alberta. So that that's really the, the trend that I see at, at the moment, but to long story short, Keith come back full circle is I think people don't really, there's a small portion of society that thinks it's over, price and it's going to actually correct. I think they might, they, they probably do agree that yeah, valuations are really high and stretched and it's kind of insane, but people believe that the government literally will have their back and that you can't, it's can't lose mentality in the Canadian housing market. Can I ask a follow-up question, which is given the interest rate expectations and obviously Keith and your view and our views that they're going to raise rates until something breaks has it's and that seeped into the mainstream media. Has that at all affected the people's sentiment with respect yeah. to this faith? I mean, it's a good question because I was actually going to try to loop this into the whole podcast here. It's like I said, I think we are seeing this on the ground. It's not showing up in your data yet. Give it two, three, four months from now, that will show up in the data. But you are seeing set sentiment has changed in the two sort of big frothier cities in Vancouver and Toronto, hundred um, percent. People are saying, you know, as opposed to like, Oh my gosh, I got to get in, which was like six, six to eight weeks ago. Everyone's like, oh, I got to get in. Prices keep going up. They're going up so fast to all of a sudden, Hey, hold on a minute. Interest rates are going up. They're expected to go up. You no, know, another like seven times this year. Um, plus inflation, like that's two bucks a liter to fill up my gas tank. There's a war in Ukraine. Like sentiment has changed. Um, so I would say in, in basically in two, two of Canada's largest markets, you are seeing home purchasing activity slow, I would say fairly significantly. Um, but yeah, and now, but if you, again, there's not really a national housing market. If you look at Alberta, that market is actually accelerating. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. But again, it's accelerating because if you look at it, like if you zoom out 10 years, it's historically cheap. It's like that. It's like the value trade in the equity market. It's like 10 years. That's crazy. Can I ask one more follow-up <laughs> question? Um, so one quick follow-up question. So one of the data points we didn't talk about um, is the Canadian employment data that came out um, last week or this week. I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm confused because I'm on vacation. Anyways, the, the employment data was 330,000 new jobs created in, in Canada, which is excellent. And the unemployment rate fell, which is obviously really good. But a third of those jobs were in the construction sector because I guess that's all we do. Um, but I was just wondering on the supply so that we know the demand and the sentiment on demand is changing. But I was just wondering if you saw um, supply and, and sort of the changing and if you if you think that that's coming on finally, whether it's new construction or just people saying, hey, I'm going to put my house on, on for sale after two years of not doing so. Uh, the supply side is very slightly picking up. I think so. What my, what I've basically been saying is like, what's happening right now in the housing market is the demand is slowing. So you have fewer home buyers. The sentiment has changed most importantly, which is kind of, you know, the changing of the bull market. So the sentiment has changed. I think the only thing that's underlying that is really supporting these valuations right now is the fact that you still have essentially record low inventory. And it's going to take months and months and months and months to get that inventory from crisis levels to at least like a balanced level where you then start seeing, you know, I think price cutting from sellers. And so that's really the biggest thing. I think there is, if you look at the pipeline of homes under construction in Canada, it's quite full. I think there's, there's a lot of new housing construction coming to, to market over the next several years. I'm not necessarily bearish on that. I think that we desperately need a lot more housing supply. Um, I do think to your point of the construction hiring that we talked about this uh, offline with a couple, couple buddies in the industry, there is a acute shortage of like skilled tradespeople. 
And I don't see that getting better anytime soon. So people are always like, oh, we just need to build more housing supply. It's like, well, good luck. Go find, go, go, go find a couple framers for me. Like we are building at capacity. I don't think it's that easy to actually dial up the supply. And if you think about all these, like a lot of these, there's no millennials that are like, I want to be a plumber when I grow up. Like they're all going into like, they're all trying to start the next Facebook and tech. So like everyone that like the skilled labor blue collar jobs have been kind of left for dead. And so there's a, a shortage of them. And I think that a lot of these, you know, the older sort of skilled trades, people are actually nearing retirement over the next five, six, seven years. So I, I'm kind of curious. I, I think we're going to ultimately rely on immigration for a lot of the future home builders in Canada. I just want to touch one second on the, um, the employment data that, that comes out. So the, the Canadian monthly employment data, it is the worst out of all the data releases in, in Canada. I was going to say sure. that too. It, yeah, yeah, it is. So for example, the, the latest number, uh, it, and I say it's the worst because the, the, the Canadian economists at the big banks, like they're really good. Like it, it, this group of professionals, they're extremely sharp. And this is the one number they miss by a mile every single month. So this latest month, the, uh, the actual number was 336,000 and their estimate was 128,000. So it's like they missed by almost three times. The other thing to think about the previous month, it was a 200,000 number loss in terms of jobs for the country. A few years back for the American uh, data. So America is what, 10 times bigger population basically? Yep. Roughly, okay. yeah. a, a typical monthly payroll number out of the U.S. would be between three and six hundred thousand. Like that's that's typically where it would go during bad times, three hundred or even the low twos. Great times is six hundred plus. All of a sudden, Canada is having prints at three hundred thousand plus again. Th this number is is it doesn't. We never put a lot of weight on the Canadian employment number. Well, uh, the point you made though, uh, Steve, about you know, this is a bit of a, uh, you know, just philosoph not philosophical, but just thoughts on, on life and everyone. So when I was younger, everyone had to go to university. You were deemed, you were going to university to get an education. And, you know, years later, and even today, it's like, well, is, is it worth it anymore? Do you need to go to university and pay thousands of dollars for to be educated when you can get a lot of these educations on YouTube today for some of these degrees that, that they do? Um, and then you have the trade side of it. So here's a shout out to uh, like so one, one of my best friends is a guy from Winnipeg and one of his best local friends, um, his, his name is uh, Bloomer. Anyway, he started out as a roofer. So the young guy, if anyone knows the roofing industry, man, is not an old person's game. It's, it's backbreaking work. Anyway, years later, he's one of the most successful roofers out there in the Winnipeg area. If he's listening to this, you know, God love you. I'm good friends with your mate, Scott. But here it is. here's a guy. They got trade. He's, he has, you know, so many other people hired doing the work. And as you said, Steve, like it's hard to get people today to do work. So, you know, anyone today, they're trying to find their path in life. You know, don't be swayed by this thing. You have to go to university. Maybe, maybe it is a trade. Maybe that's what you need to do. Or if you do go to university, become an economist, and then you can help <laughs> Rich out to get his to get his emerging market story a bit better. I, I mean, I would say that most of these trades are your, I mean, based in Vancouver, I, I know a lot of, your minimum six six figures, minimum. Um, I, I know I know guys making, you know, like, this is a funny thing, is like, if you do a small renovation, like, nobody wants to do them anymore because everyone's like, I'm so busy. I don't have time for these little jobs. Like, plumbers bill out now at like 50 bucks an hour. Like it's, yeah, it's, 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 it is pretty wild. Um, yeah, Keith, you get back to your point. We call that the, uh, the employment figures in Canada, the, the random number generator. Um, but it's almost like Canada's CPI, right? Cause I think people were like, that number came out at five, seven, like, well, hold on a minute. The U S just came out at 7.9. Like how the hell are we at five, seven? And so, I mean, there's always like, again, guys, you have to kind of keep in mind it's the data isn't perfect. Uh, you have to look at what, what is the estimate from the, uh, from the economic, from the economist community and like the inflation number, they're, they're pretty, again, you're, you're playing the game that you're giving, you know, the sticks and pucks with, with the play. And the Canadian guys are pretty good with the inflation data that comes out. It's just the employment numbers are, and they're one tough one. 
Rich, what's one. the one on the inflation in Canada? Though? I don't think they, they don't include used cars, right? Oh, you got me. Sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. I think I think I think Canada's CPI does not include the used car prices, which I think in the US are up like 40% year over year. So that by removing that uh, you know important metric, I think that sort of sways some of the CPI there. Guys, yeah, well, that, that's important. Sorry, one last thing. I know you got to go, but the other thing is just like that's why it's important to look at sort of the BOCs, like preferred measure of inflation, where they do medians or trimmed means, and the U.S. is the same. They do um, they they do stuff that excludes transitory or uh, crazy items. Uh, sorry, Keith, you're gonna say. I something? just want to finish. Yeah, switch to like with market related, you know. Um, you know, sort of like, you know, last week I told the Velcro man suit story. People like that a lot. People like that yeah, I know. story. <laughs> I know it was great because they could just, you know, picture, you know, Keith ramming into a wall. But the, the point of the story was pointing out to oil market. So back then oil had hit 130 the day before. And I said, you know, it's likely you're at, at the top. We've had that, you know, big sell off in, in, in oil prices here. If we, so the next contrarian trade that's out there is actually to be long the 10 year bond market. And uh, if we are headed for a slower economy coming up, and in the U.S. specifically, it doesn't have to be a recession, but slower. And we know what they're doing with the front end of the curve. We can easily see, you know, the 10-year. It's, it's, it may have troughed this month. So, uh, you know, as Rich pointed out, you know, you want to, you know, buy things when they smell and sell them when they smell. You didn't say that, but something like that I, anyway. I'd like to sell add them when they smell nice. Keith, I think, <laughs> I think I think we should add an asterisk next to your comment there, which is Keith is not saying that he's holding this ten-year bond to duration. Uh, <laughs> it is simply a trade, yeah. a shorter-term trade. Tactical, tactical trade. It's a tactical trade. Uh, do not hold that bond to maturity; you will be slaughtered. Um, but that is probably a good way to end the show right there. So you guys, Wait, you said it. the words, you said the word slaughter, which reminds me of Clarice Starling and her lambs, right? They I don't think you know what that, that movie doesn't end the way you think it does. But anyways, we thought it's that was not the ending. The it's the middle part of the story. The emerging yeah, well, market the, world <laughs> is going to get slaughtered. Now there's some, some, the home, some, some homework, some homework here for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> you can go watch signs of the lambs. Uh, we threw in some tactical <laughs> trades there, some housing updates, uh, you know, forward looking on, on what the Fed's going to do. So uh, as always, we hope that helped. We appreciate your support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least one person. Let's continue to build the Looney Hour community. We touched on it last week. We are still working on the final details of organizing a live event in Vancouver for the Looney Hour. We'll kind of do like a live podcast you know, happy hour mingle, a couple drinks here and there. Uh, so stay tuned for those details. Hopefully unveil those fairly shortly. But again, as always, we appreciate your support and we'll see you next week.